Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Let's get started here on Legal Faceoff. Our first guest, Professor Stephen Vladek, a nationally recognized expert on constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He's also an author, wrote a book called The Shadow Docket, and it dives into the U.S. Supreme Court. Steve, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Christina. So as Kevin mentioned last month, your book, The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic, hit the proverbial bookstore shelves and has already garnered a lot of positive press. In your book, you talk about how the Supreme Court has recently been using what has long been referred to as the shadow docket to issue some very important decisions behind the scenes and without any public hearings or explanation. Can you please explain for our listeners what exactly the shadow docket is and what your book is about? Sure. So, you know, normally when we think about the Supreme Court and the rulings that the justices hand down, we focus on what might, for lack of a better term, be called the merits docket, the 60 or so big decisions the court hands down each term, including this month um, on, you know, the sort of hot button issues of the day from affirmative action to immigration to the student loan program. Um, but the reality is that that's only about 1% of the Supreme Court's total output. 99% of what the Supreme Court does, it does through unsigned, unexplained orders. And the shadow docket is just this umbrella term that was coined by a University of Chicago law professor, Will Bode, in 2015, really to capture that body of the court's work. Um, and the reason why I wrote a book is because it's not just that, in general, understanding that part of the court's work is really important to understanding the Supreme Court. Um, But specifically, in the last five or six years, we've seen the court use the shadow docket in ways that it never has before, um, in ways that have had profound impacts, everything from blocking the vaccination requirement for large employers to allowing Texas's abortion ban to go into effect, to allowing Alabama to use congressional district maps that violated the Voting Rights Act, I mean, you name it, um, and the Supreme Court has somehow dealt with it through an unsigned, unexplained order in the last few years. Christina, and that's a really important story unto itself, all the more so when once you look at the body of those rulings, you see the court behaving in a way that's hard to defend based on any neutral legal principle, and instead really at least appears and smacks of the justices voting for their policy preferences. So why is that? I mean, what do you attribute this recent uptick in the use of the shadow docket to, especially on these big issues that you mentioned, abortion, uh, immigration, COVID vaccine mandates? These are not small things. These are really impactful national issues that, uh, you know, has a real impact on people's lives. Yeah. You know, Rich, I think part of it is that the court's being asked to intervene in ways that it never has before. Um, And, you know, that's sort of a chicken and the egg question. Um, We saw really starting in 2017, the justices using emergency intervention. So early in a case before it's gone all the way through the courts, um, when the court is asked to step in and either freeze a lower court ruling or unfreeze a lower court ruling, we saw the justice being asked to do that a lot more often first by the Trump administration. Um, And, you know, whatever we think of the, you know, the policies the Trump administration pursued, 
whatever we think of the, you know, the rulings the Supreme Court handed down, Rich, I think that normalized it. And I think that, you know, made it much more sort of comfortable for the justices to feel like it was appropriate to intervene, where as, you know, before 2017, the only place where we really saw this kind of aggressive emergency interventions by the Supreme Court, guys were in death penalty cases, um, right? Like at the, you know, last minute to freeze an execution while there's still some pending challenge to it. So when we have this shift where it started in 2017 toward using emergency applications for regular policy disputes, I think the wheels really come off where all of a sudden the justices lose sight of what's an emergency. Um, They lose sight of the traditional reasons why they weren't so aggressive in the space. And, you know, Rich, I think they end up voting instinctively in a context in which their instincts are going to run toward their policy preferences, where the big difference between a ruling on the shadow docket and ruling on the merits docket is here, they don't have to write a 40-page opinion where they have to provide a rationale, or they don't have to join someone else's 40-page opinion with the rationale. And so there's less pressure on the justices to actually articulate and defend neutral legal principles that might make the decisions look more appropriate. So, Steve, I'd like to unpack a little bit more something you mentioned about the emergency nature historically of what the intent of the shadow docket has been. You've called these rulings um, that have emerged over the last few years inscrutable and inconsistent. You've also used the term the dirty secret in the context of how these emergency rulings play out after the emergency rulings come down. Can you explain for our listeners what you mean? Sure. I mean, so let me just take those in order. So first, just by tradition, when the Supreme Court issues an order as opposed to a decision after oral argument, the norm is that the order is unsigned and unexplained. So it's not like the justices sat around and made some nefarious decision to not explain themselves. It's just inertia. Um, And, you know, Christina, that's one thing when the order has very little effect, um, when it's preserving the status quo, when it's affecting no one other than two parties to some private dispute. But when that unsigned, unexplained order is actually disrupting what's true on the ground, either across Illinois or across the country, you know, that's where the lack of explanation becomes a problem. And, you know, to the dirty little secret point, the best defense of this, right, the best normative defense of this behavior is that what the justices are doing is they're just providing a preview. Um, They know that when the case comes back in three or four years, this is how they're going to rule why wait, right? Why require a party to actually be harmed by a lower court ruling that the justices know they're going to reverse? And the problem with that defense is twofold. First, many of these cases don't make it back to the court on the merits, right? That's the first part of the problem. So that the what the court says at the emergency stage is often the only thing it says. And second, even when it does come back, we often see the court change its mind. Um, this happened just a couple of weeks ago with the Alabama redistricting case where in February 2022, the Supreme Court in an unsigned, unexplained order froze a lower court ruling that would have required Alabama to redraw its congressional districts. Um, The effect of the 2022 ruling was to allow Alabama to use its contested map. Well, Christina, a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court said the map was actually illegal, Um, right? Where the, the shadow docket ruling, the unsigned, unexplained order that allowed Alabama to use its maps Um, turned out to not be predictive of the merits. And so the problem this exposes is that when the justices are not explaining themselves, when the rulings are producing these massive effects, when they're not predictive of the merits, um, and when they're really hard to square with any 
neutral legal principle as opposed to the partisan policy preference of the justices. This all paints the court in a really bad light, not because, you know, one has to believe that the justices are, you know, nefariously plotting behind the scenes to do all of this, but just because it's inconsistent with what makes the court a court. It's inconsistent with the court's own historical justifications for where it gets its power from and for how it's supposed to act. Professor, speaking of the court being seen in a bad light, uh, the Supreme Court, in the latest Gallup poll, uh, only 25% of respondents said that they have uh, you know, a good deal of confidence in the court. Breaking news today, of course, is uh, the latest revelation of a trip, uh, a trip taken by one of the Supreme Court justices. This time it was Alito, who uh, it has been reported, took a luxury trip back in 2008 with a hedge fund billionaire named Paul Singer. Uh, that was before several cases involving Paul Singer were before the court, including one where Alito, who again was the recipient of this luxury trip, voted in favor of the majority, a 7-1 majority, in favor of Singer, which resulted in his hedge fund, Elliott Management, uh, with a $2.4 billion decision. Now, really unusually, Alito has taken the preemptive step of publishing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he defends himself, saying, number one, I was unaware of the ties of uh, the parties to Singer at the time. And number two, even if I wasn't, I didn't have to recuse myself. We're in bizarre times. So um, in light of your excellent book and what you said now with the shadow docket, how can the American public have any confidence in the Supreme Court being an ethical unbiased body that is only deciding cases based on their merits? Um, I, <laughs> it can't be. Um, I mean, Rich, I think I think this is part of why I wrote the book, because to me, the sort of the ethical charges that keep coming out and the justice's own behavior are symptoms of the same disease as the procedural behavior the book is focused on, which is a court that just isn't accountable um, in ways that historically the court has been and that, to my mind, the court should be. Um, and, you know, we're going to not all agree on what the court should do in any given case. We're not going to all agree on how the justices should or should not handle their friendships with their local neighborhood billionaire. Um, we should all be so lucky. But I think the larger point here is we ought to be able to agree that it's not healthy for our system to have a court that is beholden to nobody other than the justices, um, where, where we're relying on the justices to police themselves where there's no meaningful accountability. And one of the stories the book tries to tell is that historically, that was not how this operated. Historically, for the better part of the first 200 years, you know, the Supreme Court was part of this dynamic back and forth interbranch dialogue with Congress about its docket, about its budget, about its building, about the justices' travel, where, you know, not everything was great, but at least it was healthy from an institutional perspective. That dynamic has fallen apart, where now you have a court that is not looking over its shoulder. You have Congress not invested in regulating the court as such, uh, right, where the separation of parties has overtaken the separation of powers. And Rich, I think we're seeing more and more symptoms of what happens when you have a court that is not remotely worried about anyone checking it. Some of that shows up on the docket. Some of that shows up in the justice's personal behavior. But wherever you find your most relevant data point, the, the disease is the same. It's a disease of accountability. Having a conversation about the court as an institution and not just the merits rulings we like or don't like is, to me, Rich, part of how we start walking back up that hill. 
and how we talk about building a pathway to reform that's not just about liberals versus conservatives, right? It's about healing the court as an institution for the better of our legal system as a whole. Fascinating stuff. Stephen Vladek, a frequent guest of ours here on Legal Faceoff. Professor Stephen Vladek, we thank you for your time. You can find that book available for purchase. It is called The Shadow Docket. Again, Stephen, thank you for your input on this very important topic. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be with you guys. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Our next stop on the Legal Faceoff. We will be joined by Jennifer Ann Kinder, the founding attorney of Kinder Law PLLC out of Dallas to talk about individual lawsuits with Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift fans. So Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, As Kevin mentioned, you're a Dallas-based attorney and you and your daughter are also bona fide Swifties. You're currently representing a number of fellow Swifties in lawsuits against Ticketmaster regarding the recent Taylor Swift ticket debacle. You've said that you believe that the culprit here is the merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Tell us more about the lawsuits and the claims you're bringing. The lawsuits have three causes of action. One is negligence, which we recently added. And then we have other antitrust, fraud, and misrepresentation causes of action. We added negligence based on our belief, um, based on some recently discovered evidence that the platform that they are using for consumers to purchase tickets, they intentionally purchase a software that doesn't accommodate the the traffic. Why would they do that? Uh, Well, what they do, what they want is they want scalpers, bots, people that have access, verified resellers through their own program. They want those individuals to know the system on the system quicker. They want verified fans in a separate category and a separate queue, harder to get through, harder to manage, harder to purchase tickets. Because if you resell your ticket, and we know that most tickets are resold two or three times, that's three fees that are incurred higher fees because the ticket price is higher. So it's an overall win for Ticketmaster because they make more money. But doesn't some of this, sorry, doesn't some of this boil down to just the free market? I mean, across, no, this lawsuit is um, one of many that people are bringing 
against recording artists and the recording industry and companies like Ticketmaster. Um, I get it. You know, I'm a consumer also, and I, my daughter's obsessed with Taylor Swift. I'm taking her to Minneapolis this weekend to see him uh, or to see her, I should say. But, you know, um, the flip side is that, you know, in the free market system, shouldn't artists and those industry supporting artists be free to charge as much as possible uh, for these very limited and unique services? Well, this is a manipulated market. This is not a free market. And we shouldn't use the word free market because this looks nothing like it looked in the 80s when I stood in line and I had my place in line and I purchased my ticket based on my place in line. What's manipulated about the system is it's it's hedged uh, for scalpers, bots, verified resellers. They all get in first. They all get the tickets. Then it goes to the resale market. So you and I as verified fans, we don't get a we don't get an equal chance at a ticket that everyone else gets. And my guess is is that you overpaid for your ticket. Let me guess. Can I guess? Did you overpay for your ticket? What a, what a shock! I, I certainly did many several times over so far this tour. That's right. And it's intended and manipulated to be exactly what you experienced. And what we now have is not a free market, but we have a live entertainment industry that's really only for the wealthy, the people that don't go on vacation. So they go by that's that is their vacation. They don't pay their rent in order to purchase a ticket. It is a manipulated market for the wealthy. So, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about um, the strategy. So it looks like there are many plaintiffs. And instead of doing a class action, which is something that we will often see in similar contexts where we have multiple plaintiffs with the same causes of action, the decision has been made at least up until now to pursue different lawsuits with each of the plaintiffs. Can you um, just let our listeners know why you made that decision? Well, it's sort of a two-pronged strategy. One is that class actions as a group, Ticketmaster is super familiar with these sorts of lawsuits. They drag on for a couple of years. They go through this Kafkaesque arbitration agreement. And Ticketmaster will end up paying a lot of money, but then the consumer gets nothing. The attorneys get wealthy. Uh, Ticketmaster gets out scot-free. And then, you know, the consumer gets the price of a ticket or they get $10 or they get a credit on something via Ticketmaster. That's not what we're after here. Prong two, which is to make an impact and to make a difference and to make a change in the system. If it takes every single one of these cases being individually litigated, so for the next 10 years, Ticketmaster is in front of a judge and a jury based on how they sell tickets in the United States, and it is over and over again. You know, I, I tried to model it after some of other litigation that actually impacted the country, asbestos, cigarette. Um, those were individually litigated, and it took years and years of individual litigation for the industry to realize that consumers are not going away. They're going to continue to bang this drum until the industry decides to make a change. They're going to willingly, because we know that Congress hasn't made them do it. The Justice Department hasn't made them do it. Uh, so that is the, that's sort of the thought behind the individual lawsuits, that we come at them hard for as long as it takes in as many different ways as it takes. Jennifer, some of that, uh, some of that litigation that you mentioned uh, was really dependent on some uh, evidence that came out during discovery that turned out to be really 
impactful smoking gun types of evidence. Have you come across any such evidence in your discovery so far? I know it's very early on, but uh, and do you expect any you know whistleblowers? Do you expect any anything like that that would turn this litigation around? Well, we haven't received that information because Ticketmaster does not want to produce it. So they have drugged their heels. The only thing that they so far are yet required to produce to us is our own forensic data. So the 133 plaintiffs that we have, their own individual footprints on the system, which really doesn't help us. I mean, you know, we have 133 Swifties that filmed everything they did. We don't need our traffic what we need is everyone else's traffic, which is what they've refused to produce. They've asked for, asked for orders so that they don't have to do it. So they have a strategy. They have a system that they go through in federal court, and they worked for 10 years to create a system that's very difficult for individual consumers to get any information. So no, we don't have that information. We have hired a firm to get that information, but so far yet, the judge has not required them to produce that information. So Jennifer, real quick, last question here on Legal Face Off. So over the past couple of months, you had made the point about Congress not really adequately addressing the issue. Um, over the past few months, various politicians, including Senators Ted Cruz and Amy Klobuchar, have presented a variety of bills intended to reform the ticket selling business. What are your thoughts on these proposed bills? Well, thank God for bipartisan. I mean, Ticketmaster unified the nation in a way that we have never been able to do in recent memory. So both sides are in agreement that there needs to be some substantive changes because they are, in fact, a monopoly. We are fully in support of the recommendations coming from Congress. We are very hopeful that the Justice Department is going to hammer Ticketmaster, like hammer them hard in fines, maybe break up Ticketmaster Live Nation. So we are very hopeful, but we are not waiting on Congress to do the job that we as consumers are willing to do in suit by suit uh, you know, hearing by hearing. So Jennifer, you're hoping that they will break up and uh, never, ever, ever, ever get back together. It sounds like. Uh, love your Taylor Swift uh, homage. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, we're in into vigilante shit right now. If you'd like a, you know, a little, you know, repartee, Taylor Swift repartee, we're definitely into some vig vigilante shit right now. Certainly a topic that impacts all of us. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. That's Jennifer Ann Kinder, the founding attorney of Kinder Law out of Dallas. Thanks for your input. The last stop before we get into the legal grab bag is a story that could set a precedent for all of American sports. Lawyer at Berg and Androfy, Jim Quinn, joins us now. Live Golf and the PGA Tour have agreed to come together to form a new for-profit entity despite all of the clashing between the two sides and the respective golfers. And now the Department of Justice is getting involved over antitrust laws, among other things. So, Jim, several senators have called the deal a sports wash given Saudi Arabia's ties to terrorist organizations, to 9-11, to human rights violations. Um, how will all of that impact the DOJ's investigation of this deal? You know, uh, I think the DOJ is going to focus on the deal itself. It probably has some vague impact 
Uh, I think the more significant issue is going to be how the DOJ looks at this when you have two competitors uh, deciding they don't want to compete anymore. Um, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what kind of defense to uh, the investigation uh, both sides uh, put forth. Jim, one of the interesting points that I think PGA Commissioner Jay Monahan has emphasized over and over again, we know he's now ill, but in, in the many appearances he's made since the deal was uh, was announced, is calling, not calling this a merger, you know, emphasizing that this is a new entity. Uh, will the DOJ be fooled by, you know, these choices of words? It seems like that's uh, an overt attempt to avoid investigation or, uh, or or a lawsuit by simply not referring to this as a merger? Well, it's one of the ways that you try to defend this kind of a circumstance. You say, well, this is a new joint venture, so it's not really a merger. Uh, and technically, that's true. It's not really a merger. Uh, but the issue is going to be focused on whether or not uh, by entering into this joint venture, they the parties have impacted competition, uh, affecting players affecting uh, possible in investors uh, and uh, and the, the folks who run the tournament. Right. And speaking of that, Jim, one of the key questions that any investigation like this will dive into is ultimately whether this helps or hurts consumers, right? That's one of the key tests. And arguably, isn't it arguable that this deal, if, if it goes through, would actually help golf consumers by being able to uh, enjoy all of their favorite golfers and all of the, um, you know, uh, you know, basically all the marketing of the sport under one umbrella. Well, on, at, at, at that level, you could look at it that way, but that's not really how the, uh, the, the economists at the, at the Department of Justice are going to look at it, that uh, now you're going to get to see all your players again, uh, because uh, the reality is uh, they look at it from an economic standpoint, but they're not consumers and consumers are not necessarily just the people watching television uh, but but uh, but consumers also include the other people that impact uh, the the world of golf uh, whether or not from an economic standpoint uh, and from a competitive standpoint the uh, this this uh, joint venture is pro-competitive as opposed to anti-competitive that would be the test that the Department of Justice would, uh, would apply. And Jim, speaking of the other entities that might be affected, you know, I'm thinking of broadcasters, for example. Golf is, you know, there's billions and billions of dollars literally involved in the broadcasting, marketing, uh, endorsements of golf. Um, you know, I could think of a broadcast company, for example, that's vying for the rights uh, for golf. And now instead of the competition being out there and dictating what the cost of that broadcast rights are, uh, it's just being set by this, you know, perhaps monopoly, um, driving up the cost of not just marketing the sport, but broadcasting it as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's one aspect to it. And that's what I meant by the, you know, when you look at consumers, you've got to look at a, a much broader group. Uh, obviously, people who are involved from a marketing standpoint, uh, people are selling, uh, you know, logos, hats, other things. Uh, all of those arguably are being affected. And again, they're... Uh, both Saudis and the PGA are going to have to come up with arguments to say why uh, that, uh, that not, notwithstanding that, it, uh, this deal, this, quote, joint venture is pro-competitive. 
Jim, the Biden Department of Justice has been very aggressive in pursuing antitrust violations. Uh, by one account, uh, last year, the DOJ and FCC um, stopped a record number of deals. One of the more high-profile ones was the proposed uh, you know, deal between JetBlue Airlines and American Airlines. Why do you think this administration is so aggressive in putting a, uh, putting a stop to deals like this? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's, a fairly, it's not surprising from a Democratic administration. Uh, they tend to be, uh, I don't want to say anti-business, but they tend to be less uh, focused on uh, the, the notion that you're going to leave companies alone to do as they uh, will. This is the same, you know, Democratic view that the government has to step in when they think something is wrong. Uh, obviously, uh, a Republican administration is less likely to uh, um, to do uh, the kinds of things that the DOJ and the FTC have done uh, since Biden become became president. Uh, obviously, he campaigned on uh, making uh, this uh, a quote more competitive world. We'll see. We'll see whether or not that works. Jim, do you think this deal ultimately goes through? I think it's 50-50, in all honesty. I think there's a reasonable chance that the DOJ will will seek to stop it, or at the very least figure out some way to to, uh, allow them to compete at at, at least at some level. And that's where the overlay of the issues relating to the Saudis plays plays a part. Jim Quinn, lawyer at Berg and Androphy, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your insight. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's on to the legal grab bag segment here on the Legal Face-Off, correspondent at WTTW in Chicago tonight, Amanda Finicky and Director of Risk Management for Stanley Steamer, Eric Spalsbury, join us as we get ready to hit on several stories. First off, one of the former president's lawyers has resigned from the defamation case against CNN, guys. Yeah, that's part of the news where, you know, we're going to now make uh, this, Tina, our weekly or or per episode Trump update because, I mean, literally, uh, he keeps providing us with amazing content. And, you know, where the the trial date, a couple of big things in the news, the trial date was set yesterday. Uh, The judge set the trial date for his Mar-a-Lago case uh, trial in federal court. You know, it's unlikely that the case will proceed that quickly. 
um, to trial. But, you know, most judges like to set trial dates and then continue it if need be. But I think this sends the message that uh, they are going to proceed, you know, relatively quickly. The prosecution, Tina, has made a speedy trial request which is unusual, right? Mostly you see that from defendants who are asking for a speedy trial. In this case, the opposite is true. Uh, Jack Smith, uh, the prosecutor, in this case, special counsel, wants the case to proceed relatively quickly, mostly because, you know, there's a DOJ rule that says that you shouldn't prosecute people if it's going to affect election. And there's no way that this case is going to proceed, I think, or conclude quickly enough to avoid it implicating the presidential election. So that'll be interesting. Um, as Kevin mentioned, uh, two of his lead attorneys resigned a day after the indictment. You know, I saw these guys like on all the news channels, zealously defending Trump. And then they resigned the next day. That's one of many resignations over the last couple of years that his lawyers have been involved in. And then the latest, as if that's not all enough, everyone, um, last night there was a Fox News interview with Brett Baer. Uh, on the formerly very pro-Trump Fox News, you know, it used to be that Trump loved Fox News. He, w- he went uh, out of his way yesterday to say he no longer likes Fox News and has been for a while. But Brett Baer, I think, did a better job eliciting confessions and evidence that Jack Smith can use than any prosecutor ever would. And that wasn't very difficult by Brett Baer because, you know, you wind Trump up and let him go. But, you know, he admitted that under subpoena, he refused to give up documents. He said he was still, you know, going through it. And, you know, he said there was like golf shirts and shoes included. But there was a couple pieces of evidence that came out of this interview yesterday that I think will be compelling evidence in the case against him. But lots to unpack, Tina. What are your thoughts? Yeah. And I know we could spend all afternoon talking about it. I mean, at the end of the day, a few interesting observations, as you noted, Rich, um, really going to be interesting to see how this affects uh, Trump's approval rating, particularly with the election coming. That's been an interesting thing to watch unfold is all these folks throwing their hats into the Republican uh, ring. I think we're up to what, like 10 now that are actually trying to get the nod from the Republican Party. So that's going to be interesting. I also think we could probably have a bingo card in terms of trying to figure out how many lawyers, how many more lawyers he's going to go through over the next few months. Um, and just I, I want to see what happens to his approval rating. I mean, it, it, it it's just remarkable to me that with everything that's been going on, um, I'm sure he's going to be using the Hunter Biden developments that we're going to touch on in a couple of minutes as sort of like the circus sideshow that he uses to deflect the attention from him. But I mean, I, I'm sure that this is going to continue to rapidly evolve over the coming days and weeks. Amanda, I don't know if you saw the Brett Bear interview yet. You've had some, you know, choice uh, gets in your journalistic career. I mean, I can remember Bruce Rauner. You know, you had a great one-on-one with Bruce Rauner, another Republican back in the day. But I mean, how? How much would you be licking your chops if you got a chance to sit down with Trump, knowing that, you know, he just he can't stop digging his hole any deeper, right? He he cannot stop himself. It is amazing to watch. I don't know. Um, I, I think I am kind of conflicted because, of course, he is a huge news story. You you do want to do that interview. But um, I have some. Uh, conflicts with kind of just the way that he's been covered constantly since he announced his candidacy for U.S. president. And I kind of wonder whether um, the journalism community has collectively done enough introspection in terms of how to properly follow a, a public figure and not be so caught up in some of the the shiny 
ridiculous off the wall comments and covering that um, in trying to get back to policy. So sorry, geek answer there. Clearly, when you have uh, the the first former president that is uh, federally indicted, yeah, I, I mean, you, you want to have that interview. But um, some of it is just so breathless, and I'm not sure what that does for democracy. But you know what? I want to toss this back on you guys. Would you take the opportunity to represent Donald Trump? Would that help or hurt your career? You you got to do it. I mean, I think you got to do it. Regard. We just talked to Dershowitz about that, and you know, he's had some high profile, obviously, clients. But yeah, I mean, listen, you you got to do it. I think. Um, but you're in for you're, you're in for right. Like, does it does trouble. it does it help your reputation, or does it do you leave? Listen, I, and, I, I don't know. I mean, I represent Eric Spalsbury. Spalsbury is close to being the most difficult client. <laughs> he's, he's Trump-like in his difficulty himself, but not quite as close. <laughs> I, I knew I was going to be the fall guy. Thanks. Knew it. Spalsbury, what do you make of his? Uh, what do you make of these lawyers resigning? I mean, uh, do you do you think do you think that's just par for the course? I mean, he's not an easy guy. Yeah. To I, I mean, it's just a natural progression. I mean, and, uh, <laughs> a very very challenging client, obviously. Um, anybody, any lawyer with a bit of self-respect and professional, professional acumen would probably say thanks, but no thanks after first taste. Um, now what was the one attorney trustee, right? Is that his name? Yeah. What what a name for a lawyer, huh? Exactly. I was just going to say that. Uh, Great name. Great name for a lawyer. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, of course, one of the key rulings so far has been that. The discussion between him and his lawyer, um, you know, fell under the exception of attorney-client privilege, and that was disclosed, and that was a big ruling. Um, So, you know, uh, even when you represent Trump, even the sacred attorney-client privilege is stretched. So it'll be interesting to see what, what happens as we go forward. On the other side of the aisle, Hunter Biden, President Biden's son, will plead guilty to tax misdemeanors. He also has a plea deal for a felony gun charge. This was in the news yesterday. Yeah, so of course, you know, most on the right are up in arms, uh, including, you know, Speaker of the House McCarthy. And most most conservatives feel that this is an example of a sweetheart deal, example of unfair treatment um, by not just the Department of Justice, but by the media. Uh, They feel that Hunter Biden is guilty of, you know, much more significant crimes than these relative slap on the wrist. I mean, you know, they are misdemeanors. Um, there was a significant amount of, you know, taxes that weren't paid uh, and this and this gun charge as well. Um, many, Tina, are pointing again to the difference between the what, what Republicans, what many conservatives feel is a minor issue involving mishandling documents that is common to many presidents, is what Trump and his supporters are saying, um, versus not just these cases with Hunter Biden, but the many that have not been prosecuted yet involving, you know, uh, allegations of bribery with the Ukraine over, uh, you know, his former employer um, and involving the current president. And there's all sorts of allegations involving his laptop and, um, you know, uh, much more deeper implications or or deeper allegations. So, you know, I think that uh, there are questions to be raised here when you're considering uh, why he was charged only with misdemeanors. But Again, I don't think you could compare what Biden, what Hunter Biden has been, uh, what what he, the deal that he just made with what Trump is accused of. I think they're far, far different things. Yeah, I, hey, just a, 
go ahead. I, I was just a point of clarification. Isn't this a culmination of over five years of yeah. investigation into Biden? Am I wrong? Yeah. Yes. It's not just that it's, it's I mean, it is ongoing to be fair that that investigation is ongoing. So this is just part of it. But yeah, that is correct. Yeah. I mean, Rich, I, I agree with you that it's an apples and oranges sort of thing. Um, if we're just focusing on what's right in front of us with respect to the um, gun charge, um, as well as the taxes, I agree with you that, you know, I, I do sort of wonder myself, is this enough um, in terms of, um, you know, a, a penalty, et cetera. But I really don't think, I think it's apples and oranges comparing th this particular set of issues with Hunter Biden, putting aside the Russia stuff, because that's not what is in front of us right now. I think it's apples and oranges comparing this to being a sitting president with documents and not only being in that situation, having documents that you shouldn't have anymore, but obstructing justice and not actually turning them over when you're asked to turn them over. I mean, I think that is what really distinguishes Trump from like Biden and Pence and others who may have had these documents. They turn them over right away. And that is a very big distinction. Eric, does the public care? Does the public just look at all of this and say, listen, Biden is now a Biden is now guilty or has pled to something Trump did something wrong. You know, uh, they're all doing something up there in D.C. So we're going to, you know, cancel all of them out. Yeah, I mean, that's it could be the rank and file, you know, opinion on it. I mean, it depends on how informed you are on both sides. Um, you know, I agree that it's apples and oranges. I mean, he paid the taxes, didn't he? So it's just it's just late payment of taxes. I mean, you call it evasion. Yeah, it was evaded, but he paid up, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the gun charge, um, that's a basically a self-declaration on a 4473 form for the ATF, I believe. Everybody refers to a license application, which I don't legitimately think it was. Uh, and yeah, that was a bad judgment call if he was in the throes of drug and alcohol addiction or whatever um, uh, challenges he was facing. He shouldn't have um, done that. That's misrepresentation of himself. So, uh, but again, apples and oranges, but the, the general public is going to see it, you know, black is black, white is white. Um, the vast majority anyway. Amanda, picking up on your earlier point of the media coverage. I mean, again, those on the right are looking at the media coverage of the Trump, you know, the, the, the daily uh, stories involving Trump versus the coverage in the last 24 or 48 hours involving Hunter Biden. They're seeing an inequity there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Hunter Biden isn't and wasn't the president. It's it's different. <laughs> so, yeah, there isn't they are not going to be equal, nor should they be equal. I think there has been substantial coverage of Hunter Biden, um, sometimes not always front page news. I think part of that is for a lot of reasons. Um, it, it's a lot of the stories about him, be it with um, income from foreign sources or his child support payments. Some of that's pretty complicated. Some of it's a little bit more, again, when you get to some of the, the, the personal side, a little more soap opera and therefore I suppose could be, you know, entertaining is above the fold or at least cable fodder. But 
he isn't and wasn't president. Um, there have not been charges filed. The in the U.S. attorney who was looking into this is a Trump appointee. So um, I, I think you have to look at and perhaps a more fair comparison mm-hmm. would be looking at, you know, uh, the, the Trump children who I think have and uh, one of Trump's son-in-laws, of course, uh, who have been covered, I think, with uh certain degree of skepticism or at least um, close following by the media in a similar capacity as Hunter Biden and questions raised as well about their affairs. So all of it is legitimate to look into. And clearly there appears to be a there there, given that uh, Hunter has accepted a plea deal. But uh, they they are not, as has previously been stated, part and parcel outside of even what the issues are. One is a president. One is the son of a president. All fair game. But if you if you run for president, you're going to be the one that is going to be getting all of the attention, deservedly so. And just to confirm that, too, uh, it looks like Hunter Biden's attorney did confirm to multiple news organizations that, yes, those uh, tax debts have been fully paid to the IRS. So yes, definitely firm there. A little bit uh, on the lighter note, I'll be down in Tennessee in a couple of weeks here for the 4th of July. And I honestly might have to toast uh, Jack Daniels for their win in the nation's high court, Rich. So Kevin, um, you're absolutely right. This is actually a story that we've been watching here on Legal Faceoff over the past few months. It's the case of Jack Daniels versus Bad Spaniels. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court sent back to the lower courts the lawsuit that Jack Daniels filed against VIP Products, who's the manufacturer of a chewable dog toy that's designed to mimic the famous Jack Daniels whiskey bottle and which substitutes poop jokes for the words that actually appear on the Jack Daniels bottle. Jack Daniels didn't like it and claimed it was trademark infringement. And that as a trademark owner, they're entitled to protect their very famous brand against these types of uses, which in their mind confuse consumers. VIP products claim that this is the First Amendment case and they're just parodying the Jack Daniels bottle. The federal appeals court ruled in favor of VIP products, which is how this ended up in the high court. And in reversing the ruling of the appeals court, the justices said that this That there's a test called the Rogers test, which really looks at trademark use in the context of what VIP products was caught was calling an expressive work and saying that it's artistically relevant and therefore can't be an infringement. And it's more of a like a First Amendment type of an issue. But now that the case is going back to the lower courts, the focus is going to be on whether consumers are likely to confuse the Jack Daniels and Bad Spaniels products. What's interesting, and I think a pretty important fact in this case, is the fact that Jack Daniels actually has its own line of pet supplies that it offers under the famous brand, which I think is where the possibility of confusion could actually come in in a more meaningful way, Rich. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's just uh, put in its simplest terms, you know, they just went too far. I mean, the, the similarities between the two products, everything from the shape of the bottle to the label to the wording, um, you know, they use old uh, number two versus old number seven. Uh, the font is the same. The arch. I mean, it's just too much. Right. They just got too greedy. So I think there's a point where uh, you have to you know, push back on that, um, as Jack Daniels did. I think the course did the right thing. We'll see how it, it transpires down below. But, you know, um, you know, uh, there, there, there's I, I do think as a consumer, the key question of confusion would exist given the similarities between the two products. But, um, you know, a lot of discussion involving uh, 
dog toys here at the Supreme Court. Amanda, I don't know if you uh, have any pets, but uh, would you be confused that, per- that perhaps you're purchasing an actual bottle of Jack Daniels or one of their products? More of a Basil Hayden's gal myself, but you know, uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll chew. I've been chewing on this. Ha ha. But okay. Uh. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I do think, I mean, it, the, I read something about this and there was uh, evidently Nike has gotten involved because this is a case, I mean, not just Jack Daniels. You have a lot of these sort of parodies. Frankly, I think some of them are kind of funny. Um, and I, I don't know if like the, this would be the dog toy that I would get from my friend's pups, which I am. I don't own one myself, but I try to be very good. And I, I dog sit and such for my pals when they're out of town and like to bring their their pups treats. and. I, I guess I would say that um, Nike said that not every humorous use of trademark is parody and what actually qualifies as parody. Like, is this that funny? At what point? Of course, I'm a journalist. First Amendment, freedom of expression, believer in creativity and letting those creative juices flow. But when you try to make money off of it, that, that's another story. Right. Um, and as you noted, I don't know that I need to purchase a Jack Daniels dog toy or a fake Jack Daniels dog toy. But if they're both for sale, I could see if I was Jack Daniels saying, hey, wait a second here. You are making profit off of these years of, as I believe they put it in this case, the goodwill that Jack Daniels has attempted to earn. I don't think that anybody is going to um, mistake. Evidently, this is like uh, this chew toy is supposed to pretend like it has poop inside or something. (laughs) That was what I gathered. I don't think anybody is going to uh, think that Jack Daniels does that or that their, their whiskey um, has any sort of um, flavor of number two, but um, I, nonetheless, it, 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 this is an interesting one, even for those of us who are non attorneys, non lawyers to follow. um, Because I think that while VIP is at stake here, you see a lot of these sort of, um, kind of gimmicky joke, stuffed animals, chew toys, what have you for sale. Balls. You and I have enjoyed a drink or two in our long relationship. <laughs> What's your thoughts? What? Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah, we, we have. We've tipped a few. Uh, you know, I, in one respect, I want to think it's just kind of much ado, but but we live and die by our trademark. And we guard that trademark very religiously. Um, it's very important to us. I mean, it's it's the face front to the general public and the consuming public. So, yeah, I understand uh, Jack Daniels' concerns with it. And uh, poop parody? Ugh. Yeah. Especially in a consumable product. Yeah, I've probably done the same thing. Anybody Buffalo Trace fans out there? That's my go-to bourbon. Oh. Yeah, I raised my hand. That's not particularly effective on a podcast, so I'll jump in to say, <laughs> also delicious. Been there, been to the, the the gift shop where, again, I mean, the amount of merch that you can get branded for your favorite whiskey or bourbon is really incredible. And let me just say, a lot of it, like, get <laughs> to buy in the booze. <laughs> true, true. I'll certainly see a lot of it in the next couple of weeks. Switching topics here, a whole different meaning to if you build it, they will come for Kevin Costner, who said his estranged wife will not move out of his house amid their divorce. Yeah, they have a prenup from 04 that purportedly says that after 30 days, 
his wife, his second wife, now has to vacate the home uh, once they file for divorce. She has now filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences, of course. And uh, there's some you know, rumors that uh, he was um, not faithful and he's denied that. But, but now he has sued her, saying that she's got to hit the bricks, got to move out. She has countersued. Tina's saying this is the only home that kids have ever known. And, um, you know, so there's this back and forth. Uh, uh, um, the home is worth a lot. We'll get to that in a second here. But uh, Kevin Costner is alleging that in addition to giving her time to vacate, he also gave her $200,000 towards down payment, uh, some additional money for child support, uh, rental costs, moving costs, etc. So uh, not surprisingly, given this high profile Hollywood divorce, there are uh, counter allegations going on here. Yeah, Rich, what's interesting is we've covered cases like this before in the grab bag. And I mean, from what I've seen, assuming it's true, Kevin Costner has agreed to be pretty generous in terms of the separation, in terms of child support, in terms of just the amount of money he's giving her on a monthly basis for living expenses, et cetera, et cetera, the down payment for a new house. And, you know, the way I see it is this is what a prenup is for. And if you sign a prenup and assuming that he's not somehow breaching any of the terms of the prenup himself and at face value that this is what the prenup says is supposed to happen upon dissolution of the marriage, I don't really think that there's any sort of defense here for her in terms of her, you know, just refusing to leave when the prenup says she needs to leave. Eric, you're nodding your head. I mean, this house was yeah. uh, this house was purchased by Costa when he was jogging on the beach, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's 17 acres, a thousand feet of ocean frontage. He purchased it for 28.5 million. Um, what about the argument? Well, let's. Well, what are your thoughts on it? I'll get to Amanda here in a second. I, I just, you know, I mean, regardless of the cost and, and the value. Uh, Read the prenup. I mean, I mean, it, did the 30, 30 day clock run? Has it expired? I mean, an agreement's an agreement. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with uh, my predecessor there that, that uh, yeah, it's it's the defense isn't there very well. I don't think so. Amanda, is there any merit to an argument that they signed this when they were the parties were in an inequitable bargaining position? That Kevin Costner had all the money, had all the power when they got married, and she shouldn't be held to she shouldn't be uh, held to that agreement because you know she was uh, not as powerful and as uh, resource filled as Kevin Costner did at the time. I mean, I mean, I I guess that's a good argument for her her attorneys to make i'm not sure that that is a great foundation for a marriage in the first place either then or now uh, that sort of defeats the whole point of a partnership right uh I, I, although i'm not sure I, i've never signed a prenup um this one again does appear to be pretty generous i had read that she got $100,000 upon getting married and then another 100k on their first anniversary which again um just uh, never signed a prenup, never been in the position to romantically to um, benefit from a hundred K from, uh, <laughs> from a guy, but right. it just seems strange on so many levels to me that it's hard to put myself in a place like this, um, where she again has money to find another home. I'm sure it is very difficult on the children, regardless of where they live. Um, and so, it just seems one of those things where the the more you read, the more you're like, my gosh, this whole world is 
so out of touch and holy, holy. Um, yeah, she, she has money yeah, to, she got a million dollars after divorce. She's seeking a whole lot more in terms of child support, which again, um, those kids certainly are, will need support, but I would think a lot of it should be emotional versus monetary. It, <laughs> seeing your parents go through this in such a public fashion, not going to help things. As Spallsbury, his last divorce, his first wife, when they got divorced, it was one of the most expensive divorces in Hollywood history. It was an $80 million settlement. This was when he was at sort of the height of his economic earnings. So uh, my advice to Kevin Costner the third time is like, get either don't get married again, <laughs> or get it maybe video that prenup or something. Right, right. Yeah, no underdress. You know, I, I had read something where he had really wanted the home because he travels so much for work that it's important for him to have a spot that he can call home, that he can yeah. come home to, which I think actually is a fairly relatable thing. Then again, I'm guessing there there is some sort of like second home or that this is a mansion with a wing that's big enough that his ex can hang in it for a little bit longer. I mean, again, just given the public nature of this, I guess you you don't want her to become a a squatter um, and a scorn lover at the same time, but it's, you, you got to have room, right? Are we Yellowstone fans? I've tried to get into Yellowstone. I haven't been able to get into it. It's too, soap <laughs> too soapy for me. Are y'all uh, Yellowstone? Everyone loves it though. I haven't watched it. Agreed. People seem to love it. It's on my list. It's okay. Spallsbury, you look like you could be in a spinoff of, uh, if you put a cowboy hat on Spallsbury, you could you could star in a spinoff of Yellowstone. I could be Rip's father. No, he was killed. Right? I don't know. Ooh. Uh, spoiler alert. Thanks a lot. Oh, great. Kidding. <laughs> Kidding. Going all the way back to a 2014 defamation lawsuit, Dr. Luke, Lucas Gottwald, He's a public figure. He's trying to claim pop star Kesha defamed him by falsely accusing him of rape. It's going to be a little bit harder for him to do that now. Yes, Kevin. So last week, the New York Court of Appeals issued a ruling in this defamation lawsuit that music producer Dr. Luke filed against pop star Kesha, um, which was in response to her claim that he raped her nearly 20 years ago. And as you mentioned, Kevin, it's going to make it more difficult for Dr. Luke to win his case. Because this ruling changes the burden of proof or what he must prove in order to be successful. So just to give some quick background to our listeners, the whole saga started in 2014 when Kesha sued Dr. Luke and her music and, and her label, her record label, Sony Music, to try to get out of a record deal. And Dr. Luke countersued her for defamation. She had claimed in the context of all of this that he had raped her back in 2005 and she'd made a series of false statements on social media in his, that was his side of the story. Um, he mentioned this in court rulings and he said that she, he could actually point to some text messages that she had exchanged with Lady Gaga, where she made these defamatory statements. So what happened here was the lower court found that Dr. Luke was a private figure back at the time when the defamation lawsuit was filed in 2014. Private figures have a lower burden of proof when they're trying to prove defamation cases. And the fact that the New York Court of Appeals says, wait a minute, no, Dr. Luke was sufficiently famous at the time he filed this lawsuit that he should be considered a public figure. That means he has a higher burden. He's got to establish that Kesha acted with actual malice. And that is a really tough thing to prove. 
So the court also said Kasha should be allowed to file the counterclaims that she wanted to file, including for emotional distress, punitive damages, and legal fees. And so after all these findings, the case has now been sent back to lower court so that the trial can move forward. Yeah, I mean, the case has been going on for years. You know, I mean, it's, it's time to move forward with it, and hopefully this will uh, help expedite that. But um, yeah, I mean, I agree. The key question here is whether he's a public figure. And, you know, I didn't know until I did some of the research how prolific and successful a producer uh, he is by his own account. I mean, you know, he said that he was named by Billboard as one of the top 10 producers of the decade in 2009. He said he's written most number one songs of any songwriter ever. So listen, if you're going to write that in a legal filing, then you're opening yourself up to this kind of decision. So I think it's the right, you know, it's the, it's the right call by the court. Amanda, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, is this a degree of something uh, like like hubris? Because right. it seems like he wants it both ways uh, to both be famous Dr. Luke and at the same time able to claim these sort of extra protections that you would receive if you were not a public figure. So to quote uh, Kesha Song, big fan of her music, by the way, uh, we are who we are. And Dr. Luke, you are a public figure. And in fact, this case has turned you far more so into one. Something else that uh, struck out at me uh, is a non-attorney, but it just would seem um, sensible, I suppose, to have some sort of protection, but also quite unfair that she made these allegations um, in legal rulings and in private text exchanges, which is a far different thing than, say, going out and making accusations of rape willy-nilly, say, on a podcast um, versus when you have taken legal action against somebody, you're going to make it that, that uh, claim that credible, stake your own music career and livelihood and reputation by taking it to court in such a public fashion. So um, I, I believe this new ruling also does take that into consideration, which uh, I, I guess is, is, is a woman. And I don't know, I journalist, so I try not to play sides, but um, again, big Kesha fan here. That, that's just sort of almost reassuring that that can be part of the, the context going forward versus ignored. And Amanda, the, speaking of those lyrics and, and the reason we waited for you until you jumped on, uh, in the words of the great K.E. dollar sign ha, was TikTok. the party don't start till you walk in. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Woohoo! True that. <laughs> true, true, true. Uh, TikTok, turn it up. <laughs> a lot of good Kesha songs. Mm-hmm. Really, it's hard, to, it's hard to pick your favorite, honestly. So good. Such a fun show. Dance, dance, dance. It's awesome. <laughs> Big fan. Staying on the East Coast, um, a prestigious Ivy League law school proving once again money trumps all. It doesn't matter how cool your name is, how much your students love it, how much your alums love it. If you get a big paycheck, that name is up for grabs. Yeah, Kevin. So the University of Pennsylvania is a top five law school and has tremendous goodwill in its name. I mean, the name Penn has historically meant a lot. And graduates of schools like Penn pay a lot of money to go to these types of schools because the brand is the name of the school and it makes it easier, presumably, to get a job when you graduate. So what do you do when a private donor makes a $125 million gift to the law school? Well, you rename the law school to include the name of the donor, and voila, you have University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. 
So this is not the first time that we Chicagoans have seen this happen. A couple of years ago, Chicago's very own Northwestern University School of Law, my alma mater, was renamed to the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law after the Pritzkers donated a hefty sum to the school. What's interesting is the Penn situation is a smidge different. It's a more highly ranked school, and there was a larger donation at issue with Penn. Um, and it seems like the Penn tempers are running a little bit higher than anybody um, <laughs> at uh, Northwestern. Reports are actually that students and alumni at Penn are pretty upset by this turn of events, particularly since the Cary name is also being used by a lower ranked law school, the University of Maryland. And people are actually so irritated about this that the school claims that it delayed adopting the name to appease the students and had actually told the students that we're getting ready to graduate that we'll we'll hold off on this name change so that we don't have it show up on your diplomas. However, the most recent reports are that this change actually did appear on the most recent diploma. So students continue to be pretty PO'd about this. What's further different about this situation is that Penn is actually being pretty uh, big brother about this and saying, hey, law students, you can't go to potential employers and say that you're at Penn because that's not the name of the school anymore. And they've actually requested students to send them their resumes in advance before they submit them to potential employers so that they can actually look at them, Rich to make sure that the name of the school has been changed and that none of the students are putting Penn on their resumes instead of University of Pennsylvania, Cary Law School. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, it's it's bizarre. And uh, again, there's so much money involved in this that uh, it shouldn't be that surprising. But, you know, we spoke earlier and Eric, you spoke about brand protection, you know, brands. Uh, value. I mean, you know, as Tina mentioned, like, you know, Penn is such a well-known brand and, you know, they're number four school. And by the way, they they moved from number six to number four after they refused to submit data to U.S. News and World Report, which is a growing trend among law, law schools and for a variety of reasons. We talked about that. But yeah, I don't know. If I went to Penn, I'd be happy to, you know, call it Penn, University of Pennsylvania, whatever. I mean, it's all fine. But Spalls, where do you sit on this? Situation makes me feel a lot better about my undergraduate degree from an island in the Lesser Antilles. So, <laughs> bravo! I'm kidding. I mean, um, it's a, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to that. You know, I mean, if you can buy if you can buy your way into a tradition a traditional moniker like that, I mean, that's just kind of I don't know. I don't know. I'm not big on that. Just me. Okay. Well, Ezra Miller is back in the news cycle once again. The Flash came out over the weekend. Any DC fans here? I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'd like to here shortly. Um, there's been a time. I mean, he's been in the news a lot lately. A timeline of his arrests and controversies led to a lot of those delays in that movie coming out. But it is out now. Um, but again, still Ezra Miller, just the whole hodgepodge of legal issues going on for him. Yeah, dating back a while. I mean, the movie didn't perform up to expectations. Uh, I think it made fifty-five million over the weekend, which you know is a lot for a regular movie, but for a superhero movie uh, this close to the holidays, that's considered disappointment. Uh, a lot of people are attributing that to you know Ezra Miller, the star and, and the namesake of the Flash, um, and you know uh, they have had some major legal 
issues going back a few years. I mean, it started in 2011, uh, arrested for marijuana possession uh, in 2020, quite famously was seen on a video choking a bar, uh, uh, was seen on video choking a woman outside of a bar. Um, then in January 22, Ezra Miller left a sort of cryptic message to the Ku Klux Klan threatening them. Uh, he was then arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and harassment um, involving a issue at a karaoke bar. Uh, also allegedly threw a chair at uh, another person at a bar um, that resulted in a second de uh, degree assault charge. Ezra Miller was also in June of 22 accused of grooming a, uh, a minor um, from the age of 12. Uh, and Ezra Miller was, uh, was in court over that. And then most recently, there's some allegation that uh, they are involved uh, in running a cult out of Vermont. So sort of from my business and legal perspective, Tina, you know, uh, these franchises often live and die by the stars, right? I mean, uh, Ezra Miller is not just some fringe player. They are the Flash. Uh, so it's definitely, um, you know, something that is concerning studio executives. Also knowing that when you make one Flash, you know, you're in it for a few, right? These are all franchises that generate billions and billions of dollars. Uh, Ezra Miller has been in a few, has appeared as a flash in a few films already. And, you know, uh, if successful, there'll be sequels. So um, you don't see this too often out of uh, franchise stars uh, in the DC or, or Marvel verse. I mean, you've raised some really good points, Rich. I mean, at the end of the day, they seem to be at an inflection point in their career and they're very talented they have a lot to offer, but ultimately, if they can't get it together, um, not only are they going to lose, and I think there's indications that they've already lost public support, but they're also really teetering on the verge of like violating agreements that they have in terms of, you know, these clauses that these stars have that if they get to a certain point where they are doing things that are not in alignment with the folks that are making these movies and who they want them to be, how they want them to be perceived by the public in the context of these movies, they blow their career. I mean, it's as simple as that. And then they'll have a hard time getting a job in Hollywood. So, you know, we've seen these sorts of things over the years, Rich, with various stars and, um, unfortunately, this is just another situation like those others that we've that we've seen over the years. Amanda, is uh, Ezra Miller's legal problems uh, causing people not to want to see The Flash, or is it just a crappy movie? I, I, I say the latter. Having, I say the latter, having sat through this muddled mess with my kids on Sunday, it was it was it was hard it was hard to watch. But I, you know, I don't mind if someone has some on screen off screen legal issues if it's a great movie right i mean i suppose i think we're, we're at this point in culture right where there's a lot of questioning of whether you uh cancel somebody whether somebody deserves to be very handsomely paid and in the public light if they are a public disgrace i'm sure i i guess i don't perceive it as much as legal issues as much as it is um a lot of allegations of acting in a truly inappropriate inhumane way when you're when you're a bad person i don't particularly want to try to give you my money i make a conscious effort to you know put my money where my mouth is from an environmental point of view i don't want to buy um 
any skims or perfume from the Kardashians because like they got enough of it, you know? Uh, so perhaps I think some of this might be consumers doing that. Um, I think also, as you noted, I'm not a big Marvel gal, but I have heard reviews that it was a terrible movie and people don't want to necessarily spend the money to go to the movies anyway, when you can get a lot of it at home. So if you're going to do it, and if it's going to be for an action movie, it had darn well better be an amazing flick. And apparently this one was not, I think the two combined in terms of uh, the, the movie not being well perceived, the sort of relatively in terms of what had been met expectations, uh, abysmal sales, as well as Ezra Miller's continued continued uh, coming into conflict with um, appropriate behavior for a uh, leading action figure star means that their career is going to be in a very difficult position going forward. Um, well, sorry, what stars about, to bring folks out. Yeah, Spallsbury, what about that? I mean, should off-screen legal problems have any effect on uh, whether uh, a movie generates uh, box office receipts? Well, you care? I mean, whether it should or it shouldn't, it does, you know, and I, I just look at it as, you know, regardless of what profession you're in, my profession, your profession, the journalistic profession, there's standards that we're held to on the job and off the job. I represent my company. I can't act like a, a wild berserker out in public and expect to keep my job. It's going to come back. It'll catch up with me. And I think everybody's got to realize that. I have very little sympathy for that mindset, you know, and then I hear, oh, I was having an emotional moment or I was stressed out or whatever. I think that's why was the justification for doing the home invasion of the neighbor to steal some booze or something. Another transgression. Yeah, but but wait a second. But here's the point, right? The point is that in Hollywood, it's different. You can act uh, like a fool and you can get <laughs> crimes. I mean, look at Bill Cosby. Look at funny people do. He's a pariah now. He's a pariah. Well, now, but catches for, years, for years and years, people like Mike Tyson, Bill Cosby, I mean, you can name, you know, dozens of people who, as long as they're generating revenue, people look the other way, right? Entertainers. So maybe, yeah. maybe it's, they may tolerate it a bit, but I don't think they ultimately look the other way. I think they go, ah, we got to put up with this to see a good movie. I think it depends on your PR campaign. It depends on your what you what individuals have apologized for, what they do. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that calculation, and um, some people have gotten away with it. Others have certainly not, and I don't know quite that calculus. But I'll just tell you: if you want to enjoy this particular movie, don't go in sober. Don't like. Get yourself some actual Jim Beam, not oh not the kind made by yeah, VIP. Take, take the Jack Daniels, both the, the toy and the real version, and a few of those. <laughs> it was a, a rich. How does it compare to Wonder Woman? Well, Wonder Woman is a uh, is, makes an appearance in there. There's a couple of good surprises in there. I don't. I won't ruin it for you like you did with our Yellowstone spoiler, but uh, oh, it's it's it's, it's rough. Let's. Let's end our let's end this uh, segment with an around the horn quickly. We won't talk about the Flash. We'll talk about back to our friend Kevin Costner. Let's everyone weigh in on your favorite Kevin Costner movie. The guys been making movies for about what forty plus years. You got to have a favorite. Spallsway favorite Kevin. Oh, Costner without movie a doubt. All time. Without a doubt, probably one of the top three movies that's ever been made, and that's Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good choice. That's I still good, haven't seen it. The scene where oh. he drinks his own. The scene where he drinks his own pee is your favorite. Oh, my God. All right, Amanda, favorite costume movie? 
Um, I'm going to go with, I mean, I think you have to go with Field of Dreams. Have to. Do but you? Yeah, runner up would be Robin Hood. Absolutely. I like Robin Hood also. Oh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Christina Martin, Martini. Sorry. Hey, I would say Field of Dreams, hand down. I, hands down. I would have liked to have liked Robin Hood. I didn't like it nearly as much as Field of Dreams. All right. Kevin, favorite costume movie. Maybe something a little more recent. No? Yeah, I mean, I love baseball. I have baseball on right to my left here. I'm watching the Cubs right now. Field of Dreams oh. is a great one. I It's probably my favorite, but since everybody else is at a draft day, it's hilarious. Um, that is good. I'll go draft day for sure. I already That's made my Field of Dreams. That is good. Show, so. I got, I got a lot. I love, I love JFK. You know, it's JFK is also a a complete mess. I mean, that that's an acid trip of a movie too. (laughs) Spalsbury and I have gone to a couple of Halloween costumes together as the Joe Pesci, as the Joe Pesci character. Uh, every line. Uh, Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's why I also love the untouchables. You know, you want to catch Capone? Another great movie. He puts a knife, you put a gun, he puts one of yours in the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. <laughs> Untouchables is great, but they're all. I mean, there's a there's a ton of great. No way out also is great. Oh, oh he's been in so many. Batman versus Superman. We were just talking about the Flash. Oh, Man yeah. of Steel too. Yeah, all those. I feel like I'm, we're we're wrapping up this podcast, and I've got like TV watching homework to do. Yeah, you do it. <laughs> tin Cup. Go watch some Tin Cup. What was it? What was the one with with seven Elvis guys that ripped off the? 3,000 mi- miles to Graceland. That's Kurt Russell. Yeah. Yeah. All-star cast. Terrible movie. <laughs> well, uh, thanks to Alan Dershowitz, Jennifer Kinder, Jim Quinn, Eric Spalsberg, and Amanda Vinicky for joining us today on Legal Faceoff on WGN. As always, we want to thank our producer, Ben Anderson, Rich Lankoff of Downey and Lankoff, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will, and Emery. If you're just hearing my voice for the first time, I'm Kevin Wells. I'm in for the great Joe Brand this time. He'll be back in a couple of weeks, but we thank you guys for joining us on this segment of Legal Faceoff. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.